0: My assessment of the commission is that it's totally pointless. There's absolutely no evidence to suggest that millions of people voted illegally. And it's focused on the absolutely wrong problem. We should be looking at election hacking and the vulnerability of our voting system and also at voter suppression laws all across the country that made it harder to vote in 2016 and their impact on voter participation.
1: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial free versions of every episode, plus members only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, The Bradcast, On the Media, Off Kilter, Start Making Sense, The Tom Hartman Program, and The Other Washington.
2: Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach has defended President Trump's unfounded claim that millions of people illegally voted, supposedly costing Trump the popular vote. He lost by, what, about three million votes to Hillary Clinton, but won the Electoral College. This is Kansas Secretary of State Kobach being questioned by reporters.
3: I think uh, the president elect is absolutely correct when he says the number of illegal votes cast exceeds the popular vote margin between him and Hillary Clinton at this point. What tangible evidence is there that that actually happened? Well, this is the problem with uh, aliens voting and aliens registering. There's no way you can look on the voter rolls and say, this one's an alien, this one's a citizen, this one's an alien. You, once a person gets on the voter rolls, you don't have any way of easily identifying them as aliens. And so you have to rely on post election. Studies like the Cooperative Congressional Election Survey, where you get data from aliens themselves saying, Oh, yeah, I voted. It does appear that aliens do vote in very large numbers.
2: So that was Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach in November, right after the election. In February, he again claimed there was widespread voter fraud in the presidential election. Uh, here he is sparring with uh, CNN anchor uh, Kate Baldwin
3: of the 30 states, we have about 3 million people who are registered in more than one state and that's right, not a crime, that's just an administrative right, bookkeeping. Right, the
4: president's son-in-law, including the president's treasury secretary.
3: Exactly, yeah. And, and many of your viewers are probably registered in more than one state. But what is a crime is if you actually vote in both of those states or in more than two of states. Of course it's a crime. And every but where year, is the evidence of this right, widespread, every year,
4: rampant, millions of people voting? If it had happened,
5: why, why haven't we seen it, secretary?
3: Well, it, it, well, actually, if you, maybe I don't know if your network has covered it, but in my state, uh, just people voting in Kansas and another state, my office prosecutes it. I just got that prosecutorial authority a year and a half ago. We've already filed yeah, nine from the cases. That I saw you and we have nine six cases. Guilty, guilty pleas. Right.
4: Six guilty pleas, one right. dismissed, two and pending. Are, that says January 25th. Nine yeah. cases does not rampant right. widespread voter fraud make.
2: So that was CNN host Kate Baldwin questioning uh, Chris Kobach, the secretary of state of Kansas. Sorry, Berman.
6: Well, it's important to note, first off, that Kobach is really the leading architect of voter suppression efforts nationwide. He's not just the secretary of state of Kansas. He's been going all around the country trying to put in place suppressive voting laws. So one of the laws that Kansas has in place, for example, is proof of citizenship for voter registration. You have to have a passport, a birth certificate or naturalization papers to be registered to vote in Kansas, if you register after 2013. Most people don't carry around those documents with them when they they go to register to vote. So, in Kansas, one in seven new registrants have been blocked from voting because of this one law alone. And Kobach says he wants to see proof-of-citizenship laws in every state, which would have an unbelievably suppressive vac- effect on voter registration and disenfranchise millions of people. So Kobach has been going all around the country claiming that voter fraud is widespread, trying to build support for President Trump's lie that millions of people voted illegally, to then put in place policies like proof of citizenship for registration that make it very, very difficult to register to vote. And it's interesting. You know, for my New York Times Magazine article, I looked into all of Kobach's claims about voter fraud. And I found, number one, that non-citizen registration is exceedingly rare uh, nationwide. There's no reason why a non-citizen would register to vote and risk a felony and deportation. The second thing is that Kobach is the only secretary of state in the country with the power to personally prosecute voter fraud cases. So he can actually bring these cases. And of all the cases in Kansas, he's only convicted one non-citizen of voting. So if it was so widespread, you'd think that in Kansas, where he has prosecutorial power, he would be able to show this, but he has not shown this. And this entire commission is predicated on this gigantic lie that millions of people voted illegally. And Kobach is the one who's whispering in Trump's ear, telling him this, and then trying to prove this evidence. That's why he wanted this data from all 50 states, even though there's no evidence to show that voter fraud is wise. So
2: let's talk more about your New York Times magazine piece, Ari Berman, the man behind Trump's voter fraud obsession. Give us Chris Kobach's history.
6: So, Chris Kobach is interesting, because before he was a leading proponent of voter suppression, he was a leading proponent of restricting immigration. And most people think of these issues as separate. They think of immigration and they think of voting. But what Kobach has tried to do is combine these two issues. So, first, he drafted all of these anti-immigration laws, like Arizona's SB 1070, which was the Papers, Please, law, where police could stop anyone and check their citizenship based on reasonable suspicion if they were in the country illegally. He went all around the country drafting these laws. Then he became secretary of state of Kansas and started drafting anti-voting laws. And basically what he was saying was that all of these people were in the country illegally and that they were voting illegally as well. So he combined anti-immigrant sentiment with policies that would restrict voting rights. And I think the goal here is is twofold. First, it's to try to boost the Republican Party in terms of eliminating the pool of voters who could be citizens and then eliminating the, the electorate itself. But number two, to try to preserve America's shrinking white majority. He is looking at the demographics of the country. He's seeing how the demographics of the country are changing. He's seeing how white people are becoming a minority in many states. And they're pushing both anti-immigrant policies and voter suppression policies to try to protect the Republican And try to protect the shrinking white majority in this country.
2: Talk about his connections to white supremacist right wing groups.
6: Well, this was really alarming. So, uh, since 2003, 2004, Kobach has been counsel to a group called FAIR, Federations for American Immigration Reform, which is called a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center, really the main group that's uh, promoted restricting immigration. The founder of that group, John Tanton, who is an ophthalmologist in Michigan, has said unbelievably racist things about. Latinos who said there was going to be an explosion of whites uh, against Latinos in the U.S., has republished a book called Camp of the Saints, a French novel that's unbelievably racist. Steve Bannon is one of its friends. So, uh, that's one of Kobach's influences. Another influence was Samuel Huntington from Harvard, who was a, a longtime professor there, known for his work, The Clash of Civilizations. But Huntington really had two very radical ideas that influenced Kobach. The first was that there's such a thing as too much democracy after things. things like the Voting Rights Act were passed, Huntington worried about the fact that, quote unquote, the blacks would have on the political system. The second thing Huntington denounced was the Hispanicization of the U.S., the idea that Latino immigrants were threatening Anglo-Protestant Christian values in the U.S. And so Kobach talks about the rule of law. He talks about voter fraud. He talks about these now, things—
2: Jonathan was the mentor of Was the Kobach mentor of Kobach
6: when Kobach was at Harvard. So Kobach talks about all of these things, like the rule of law and voter fraud, like it's just these common-sense things, but you scratch right below the surface, and you realize that his intellectual influences are really leading proponents of white nationalism and white supremacy in the U.S.
2: His relationship with J- Sheriff Joe Arpaio when he was there in Arizona.
6: He had a very close relationship to Sheriff Joe Arpaio uh, in Arizona, the, who branded himself America's toughest sheriff and was subsequently sued by the Justice Department for ro- racial profiling, held in contempt of court uh, by a federal court. Kobach was really the guy who sold Arpaio on the idea of mass deportation. Kobach had this idea called intrition through enforcement, which really became known as self-deportation. And the idea is you make life so miserable for immigrants that they will just leave the U.S. So, Kobach is really the guy who ended up getting our pie all this legal trouble by claiming he had this authority that he never
2: had. What about those who say the point of this commission is uh, simply to identify and then suppress uh, votes of those you don't want to be voting? Where does this commission go now with 44 states refusing to either fully or partly comply with the information request from, uh, from Kobach's commission?
6: Well, I think Trump's commission is still going to make the argument that voter fraud is widespread, rampant and massive and we have to put in place all of these policies to try to suppress votes in in reaction to that. But the point is, we're seeing they're not even going to get the data to be able to do this kind of analysis. So, to me, this entire commission is a sham. The fact that all of these states have refused to hand over the data means that this commission, in my view, should be disbanded. It serves no purpose at this point.
2: Kristen Clark, do you see that happening? Where do you see this commission going and your complaint going?
7: Well, we hope that, uh, they will revoke, uh, the Election Integrity Commission. We believe that it, uh, has a baseless mis- baseless mission, which is to substantiate the president's false allegations about widespread vote fraud. They have put together a dream team of voter suppression um, uh, proponents, uh, not just Chris Kobach, but Hans von Spakovsky. It's also uh, rumored that Ken Blackwell, former secretary of state of Ohio—I mean, these are folks who have made a career out of erecting barriers to the ballot box around our country. Uh, Ken Blackwell, during his tenure as secretary of state rejected voter registration forms that he thought were not printed on the right paperweight. Um, Hans von Spakovsky is someone who has championed voter ID laws and championed laws that um, seek to make it harder for people to vote, including taking away the right to vote from people with a criminal history. Um, When you peel back the layers, the goal of this commission is unclear, is, is clear. Um, it is intended to lay the groundwork for voter suppression laws across our country. The Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under Law filed this Hatch Act complaint against Chris Kobach, but we think that the commission as it stands today is illegitimate. Um, you have states around the country that are saying that they will refuse to participate. We intend to continue to bring pressure on other states to discourage them from uh, turning over data or information of any kind to this illegit- illegitimate commission. We know that there are folks in Congress who are introducing legislation calling for the defunding of the commission and calling for revocation of the commission. I think those are uh, important points. This is a waste of taxpayer dollars at the end of the day. And all of this is coming at a time where we're seeing the Justice Department turning the clock back on federal civil rights enforcement, including enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. We need to return our focus in this country to doing work um, that brings people into the process and get to a place where all eligible Americans are able to participate in our democracy, and the commission runs against that important goal. It's coming
8: through a hole in the air From those nads in Tiananmen Square It's coming from the field But this ain't exactly real, or it's real, but it ain't exactly there. From the war against
9: disorder, from the sirens night and day, from the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the gay, democracy is coming. According to our friend Mark Joseph Stern over at Slate on Monday, Donald Trump's so-called Election Integrity Commission paused its collection of voter data in response to the latest in a series of lawsuits and complaints, a torrent now, in fact, alleging the controversial task force is breaking the law. That's right. The task force itself is breaking the law, according to all of these complaints. The commission, which is led by Vice President Mike Pence and Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, recently asked every state for an immense amount of sensitive voter information, including not only names, addresses and birth dates, but also Social Security numbers, military status, etc. Stuff that would make identity theft, among other things, incredibly easy. Uh, In its rush to get that data from all 50 states, it seems the commission has ignored any number of statutes and agency rules, uh, writes Stern, an oversight that could ultimately prevent the group from getting its hands on any of the information that it wants. Monday's abrupt halt in data collection is, according to Stern, a direct response to a lawsuit filed by the Electronic Privacy Information Center, or EPIC. EPIC alleges that the commission is violating the E-Government Act of 2002, which requires federal agencies to establish adequate data protections before. ...collecting personal information using information technology. Specifically, an agent must prepare and publish... uh, I'm sorry, an agency must prepare and publish a privacy impact assessment that explains its methodology, outlines how it would secure its data, and state whether the data would be disclosed to others... Epic claims that the Pence-Kobach Commission has ignored this safeguard while storing voter records on an unsecured system that is not designed to protect personal data. By doing so, Epic insists the commission has run afoul of federal law and they have urged a federal judge to block the commission from gathering any more data until it complies with the e-government act. They have now, the commission has now voluntarily ceased at the moment until the uh, uh, the judge in that case renders a decision on that request. But that's not all. Last Monday, Wendy Weiser of the Brennan Center for Justice and Larry Schwartzall of United to Protect Democracy sent a complaint to the Office of Management and Budget, alleging that the commission is violating the Paperwork Reduction Act of 1980. Under the PRA, a federal agency must follow certain procedures uh, before sending an information request to more than 10 people. In this case, he sent it to, well, about 50 states. In particular, the the agency must explain why it's asking for the data regarding the public, weigh the benefits and burdens of its request, articulate its plan for conducting the request and storing information, and give public notice of its intention as well as accept commentary from the public. That process can take months, but at no point has the Pence-Kobach Commission even gestured toward that compliance with the PRA, says Stern. But that is not all either. The ACLU and the Lawyers' Committee for Civil Rights under law have both now filed separate suits against, Pence, uh, against the Pence-Kobach Commission uh, on Monday, arguing that the task force is also violating the Federal Advisory Committee Act. What is the Federal Advisory Committee Act, or the FACA? And why would Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, who is an attorney, and has made a career out of fraudulently claiming massive violations of law all across the country in what he describes as a voter fraud epidemic, why would he fail to follow basic laws like the E-Government Act, the Paperwork Reduction Act, and the Federal Advisory Committee Act? After all, as uh, the only Secretary of State in the nation granted prosecutorial powers— Kobach has thrown the book at a handful of Americans who voted in two different states, believing they were allowed to, or who were non-citizens when they accidentally registered to vote, believing they were allowed to do so. If he's going to prosecute others for relatively small violations of law, largely committed accidentally or without these folks fully understanding the law of the land— Shouldn't he understand the laws of the land before attempting to collect private data on millions of Americans?
10: Many of you listening know that there is no evidence, none, to back up the president's charge of widespread voter fraud. And so many of you may have cheered this latest development about the president's commission to root out this fictitious fraud. The Trump administration is requesting detailed voter information from all 50 states, and many states are saying they will not comply.
11: We're seeing the body slam going
9: on by 44 states, 44 states. Republicans and Democrats
6: have said no to the Trump Fraud Commission's request for voter information.
12: The secretary of state of Mississippi who said to the commission they can go and jump in the Gulf of Mexico and Mississippi is a great state to launch from.
10: Here, finally a measure of comfort to those concerned not at all about voter fraud, but seriously worried about voter suppression. That does occur and is likely to increase if Trump's commission has its way. Run by Vice President Mike Pence and Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, it was created to find fraud by any means necessary and to use those findings to pass laws that further suppress the vote. So many finds solace in reports of bipartisan pushback. But ProPublica's Jessica Hussman says that those stories don't mean what we think they mean. Jessica, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. So in late June, the Voter Fraud Commission sent letters out to officials in all 50 states asking for voter information. What specifically did they want?
11: The letter itself was incredibly sloppily done. They said, we want your publicly available voter rolls. But then the letter went on to suggest that they give them things that are never public in almost any state, like the last four digits of your social security number, your felon status, your full date of birth. And so depending on how you read the letter, they were either asking for just publicly available information or they were asking for all of this stuff that could in fact be a privacy violation. But I guess most important, is that in many states the whole
10: voter roll
11: is publicly available information right in Washington and North Carolina you can just go onto the secretary of states website and download the most recent version of the voter roll what you're probably going to get is first name last name year of birth maybe party affiliation and the number of times and in which elections you have previously voted, but not how you voted. That's how parties contact you with mailers. That's how people know that they should knock on your door. So I think that it's really important for people to understand that even if it appears that your state is not cooperating with Chris Kobach, they will probably get their hands on the publicly available voter roll. Because they have to. Because they have to, right? So, you know, this past weekend was the National Association of Secretaries of State, and they all gathered in Indianapolis to chat about election administration and cybersecurity and all the things that secretaries of states do. And one of the things that I heard from all over the board was that the media was getting this wrong. And you offer a stunning
10: example of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, here are different headlines for the same Associated Press article that ran on July 1st. Iowa election official says he'll share public voter data. Pate pushes back on Iowa voter data request. Right. Let us identify uh, Paul Pate as Iowa's secretary
11: of state. Right. Depending on how you interpret the letter that Chris Kobach sent, one or all of those things could be true. Right. So what Pate has done is he has said, I will give the publicly available voter roll to Chris Kobach because he doesn't really have any choice. His state law makes the voter roll public or he's pushing back because he's not giving them the last four the digits last, yes. of
10: their Social Security number.
11: Right, exactly. OK, so
10: there was one response that was getting a lot of press from Mississippi. It's Secretary of State Delbert Hoseman said they can go jump in the Gulf of
11: Mexico. Right. Isn't uh, <laughs> Hoseman... Uh, pretty staunchly right guy? He is. And you know what? This is a concern that a lot of secretaries of state have. The Constitution gives election administration to the states to be in charge of. From all secretaries of state that I have spoken to, every single one, they are concerned that this is a massive federal overreach. Seems like finally, finally, this partisan divide has
10: been breached to protect something that is precious and essential, but you say it's dangerous to take comfort in this.
11: Right. You know, I was having this really interesting conversation with Mirna Perez at the Brennan Center, and they're big advocates for voter rights. She said to me every single time any of these major media companies say, at least
13: 44 states, along with the District of Columbia, are now refusing to provide.
11: 44 states have refused the Trump administration's request. Well, now 44 states and, and the district are pushing back. How many people have tweeted at me I'm glad that my personal information is safe because my governor has said that they won't participate when, in fact, states are participating.
10: I guess the other part of this, and this is your scoop, is what Kobach and the commission are planning to do with these voter rolls
11: once they come in. One thing that Chris Kobach has previously said he'd like to do is run voter rolls against a database called SAVE, which is a list of all of the immigrants in the United States who are presently moving through the citizenship track. Okay. So it's a big list of non-citizens. In 2012, didn't Florida Governor Rick Scott do that very thing? He did, in fact. And what happened was that he was getting so many false positives that he had to scrap the effort entirely. How do you get a false positive? These databases don't include as we now know, the social security number of the individual, which might be a unique identifying number. If I have a Matt Schwartz from Indiana and I've got a Matt Schwartz from Oklahoma and they both have the same social security number and they both have the same year of birth, then it's probably the same dude. But if I only have his first name, last name, and I know that he was born in 1985, there are like hundreds of Matt Schwartz that were born in
10: 1985. Or maybe Manuel Gonzalez. Right.
11: And so you're going to get a bunch of people who appear to be non-citizens that in fact are citizens and are legally registered to vote. That is what's happened in Florida. Experts tell me that's what's going to happen now. This commission can point to numbers that suggest massive
10: fraud, which are actually a huge number of false positives because
11: of this method that they're using. Exactly. So when Chris Kobach tried this similar matching system in his own state, uh study by Stanford political scientists this year found that for every 200 matches that Chris Kobach found using crosscheck, only one of them was a true match. So experts are worried that Chris Kobach will find this massive number of false positives and say, look how much potential fraud there is in the United States. And all of that will be bad information. And so states will pass laws to prevent fraudulent registrations that don't exist, but will, in fact, restrict the right to vote. So there is this theory going around that the commission
10: asked for things in that strangely worded letter, knowing that officials couldn't share some of that information by their own laws in their states, but that simply by refusing, it gives the White House the opening to charge that the states must be up to something. Mr. Trump tweeting... Numerous states are refusing to give information to the very distinguished voter fraud panel. What are they trying to hide? This is seen by some as a kind of fiendishly clever three-dimensional chess.
11: Chris Kobach is not playing a game of three-dimensional chess. He is playing paintball, right? (laughs) Chris Kobach thinks that there is voter fraud. He has a target and he is going to hit it. You know and I know exactly what he's going to do. This commission is going to produce a lot of talking points. I am not convinced that it will produce a lot of policy change. At the Secretary of State's conference last weekend, I got the impression that they were all concerned that this matching system was going to be bad, that did not stop at party doors. And if they're concerned about the veracity of the data that Kobach is going to produce, then I think that they probably will not act on the information that is given to them by this commission. I was all Dark came down when the we arrived.
14: Cause they're two wells of a sacrifice, but you don't, no you don't scare me, no you don't.
12: So let's start with the basics of this Ohio purge pop. Policy. Purge is kind of one of those icky words like moist. But in this case, it means something very specific. Uh, help us understand what Ohio was doing and why the p- policy that they had on the books got struck down by the
5: appeals court. Sure. Uh, purge, it's an icky word and it's an icky thing. Uh, it has been a really troubling tactic uh, in our democracy that continues to rear its ugly head, um, even in modern practice uh, since 2000, when uh, tens of thousands of uh, eligible voters in Florida were famously struck from the rolls improperly, obviously having a major impact, therefore, on uh, the outcome of the election. Um, in that state. So fast forward 17 years later, we are still encountering um, illegal purging. So purging is when a state is improperly removing eligible voters' names from their voter registration rolls. And of course, in every state except North Dakota, uh, people are required to be registered to vote in order to cast a vote. Lots of states have same-day or election-day registration where people can actually register to vote and vote on the same day. Um, but many states require you to be on the list for a long time, you know, beforehand. The problem here is that when states engage in this kind of illegal purging, uh, you can be an eligible citizen who has been on the voter rolls for decades, always voted in the same precinct. You show, maybe you miss a couple of years, you show up at your precinct to vote. And if they don't find you on the voter registration rolls, you are unable to have your voice heard in democracy, frequently unable to cast a ballot that will be counted if you have been improperly purged from the rolls. And
12: part of what makes this Ohio purge policy, that's kind of fun to say, horrible and icky, though it is. But alliterative. But alliterative. And maybe that's why I like it. Um, but this this Ohio purge policy, what makes it so um, beyond the pale um, is that you could have Actually, voted in the most recent presidential election four years ago and still under this policy be subject to purging such that you wouldn't be able to vote in the next presidential election because they've just they decided in their infinite wisdom I'm sure that not having voted for two years is enough to take you off the rolls what's going on there what do you think the real
5: motivation in this kind of a
12: policy is
5: well and what I'll say is they're saying that if if somebody becomes a inactive voter or hasn't voted in, in the that federal election cycle, they will then send mailings to your home. So that is actually known as a practice of voter caging, because you're really using something to say, uh this is, you know, we're going to follow a process that then results, because you haven't voted, this is resulting in us uh, removing you from the roles. But there are all sorts of reasons why somebody might not uh, respond to a piece of mail. Just life being extremely busy might be one. Um, and this probably isn't a good time for me to admit publicly and on the air that I may
12: have missed jury duty. Twice because I didn't open the things and put them in the table of stuff and oops, life happened and whoops, right? I so. think that is
5: an excellent example. But the point is, if you then show up at your polling place and whoops, life happened, you didn't respond to a mailing, your name may no longer be on the voter registration rolls, even at a place where, you know, where you voted um for many, many years before. And this really hits a lot of uh, low-income people. This really hits a lot of communities of color. Um, the, in Cuyahoga County alone, uh, approximately 40,000 individuals were unlawfully purged, um, in this period of time merely for choosing not to vote. Uh, a disproportionate number of those folks were coming from low-income neighborhoods and communities of color. So the point is, it is both a, you know, Tragedy for democracy for any individual voter who is an eligible American citizen who has also done their job to get themselves registered through these processes. Registered, by the way, to exercise a constitutional right. That's exactly right. So registered to vote, have their voice heard. Um, but then it also really impacts the shape of the electorate. So when certain populations are caged and then purged, when states engage in, um, improper, improper, um, data matching, for example, where they're just using bad data sets or they're not being very careful that could really impact, for example, the Latino community, you know, with a lot of similar names. Um, So it ends up really distorting the population of eligible citizens that are able to vote, which and it's really um, constraining uh, the power of those communities in our democracy when one by one uh, people are being taken off the list and really voters are being suppressed.
12: So the officials who support and are proponents of this purge policy in Ohio, they claimed at the time that it was about keeping voter rolls quote current and accurate. Is that a fair characterization? Is there actually truth to
5: that? Or is it more like truthiness? I would say the latter. Um, the point is that there are a lot of, uh, legitimate list maintenance techniques is the, uh, lingo. Um, and you, you bring up a very good point or one that I hadn't quite made clearly, which is I've mentioned these are illegal purges. It's because there's a law against doing exactly what Ohio, uh, was was actually doing, um, and that is also what the Sixth Circuit, as you said, Court of Appeals, um, did when they upheld the plaintiff's challenge to this case. And they even went so far as to retroactively say before the 2016 elections, Ohio, you have improperly taken the names of American citizens off your rolls. Ohio, by the way, had also ended the period when they allowed same-day registration, but that's another voter suppression conversation. So, but a very related one. But a very important one, right? If you no longer have the ability to register to vote on the day you're trying to go vote, you know it's even more important that you haven't been improperly removed from the voter registration rolls previously. Um, so, those are uh, some some the the National Voter Registration Act prohibits. Uh, removing voters from rolls simply because they haven't voted previously. Um, here, there are, however, the NVRA, National Voter Registration Act, does set out um, processes that are allowed to clean the rolls, to make sure that the rolls are up to date. Um, and some of the best ways that exist to do that um, you know, are really within our reach. There's uh, something called ERIC, which allows a program that the states run themselves that is based on very good data where they can just share information across state lines about who has moved in and out of the state. Um, if, the, if a voter has found to have registered in another state, that information can be shared back with the initial home state and that, you know, would be, would you know, would be an indication. Um, and then in that instance, they also send mail to people that they LEARN have moved into the state to offer them the opportunity to register to vote. And then the clearest uh, and strongest and best way to really uh, modernize our voter registration systems in this country is through automatic voter registration. Um, Oregon, first state in the country to adopt it in 2015. They launched it for their 2016 elections. And we have seen absolutely phenomenal impact uh, in terms of increasing the population of Oregon voters that are registered. And in fact, the participation rates uh, as well, Oregon in the last election having the highest percentage of voter registration and highest percentage of turnout in their history. And we're about to come out with a report actually about showing the real geographic and demographic uh, impact of AVR. So automatic voter registration if the, you have told the state that you have moved through, through, for example, a transaction at the driver's license agency, that information would be transferred to the Department of Elections who would update your address on your registration. So there are ways to do it that are well, that protect our fundamental rights to participate in self-government. That's not what Ohio is doing. Ohio is improperly preventing people from uh, exercising their right.
6: Today's
1: episode is sponsored by Thinking Cap. It's a 25-minute weekly podcast produced by the Center for American Progress and hosted by Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the bizarre political moment we find ourselves in and the associated growing progressive movement of civic activism, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving the resistance and our country forward. Just search for Thinking Cap on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, AmericanProgress.org, or wherever Ever you get your podcasts.
15: The big picture is this. If the Democrats are going to retake the House next November, they need to be able to vote. And the Trump administration's commission on what they call electoral integrity is working to make that a lot harder. For an update, we turn to our man on voting rights, Ari Berman. He wrote the award-winning book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. He's been a senior contributing writer at The Nation magazine and a fellow at The Nation Institute. He also writes for The New York Times, Rolling Stone, The Guardian. He's a frequent guest and commentator on MSNBC and NPR. Ari, welcome back.
0: Hey, John. Good to talk to you again.
15: Well, let's start with what we've learned about Russian hacking of voting in the election last November. That's the subject of your cover story in the new issue of The Nation
0: magazine. What have we learned? Well, there's still a lot we don't know, uh, but what intelligence agency officials have testified is that uh, Russian hackers attempted to infiltrate and targeted uh, 21 different states election systems. So again, we don't know exactly what that means. We don't know uh, if they uh, got in to uh, voter registration rolls. We don't know uh, what, if anything, they were able to do with voting machines. Two states have been identified where hackers uh, were successful. One was Illinois, where they were able to steal the records of 90,000 registered voters, and the other was Arizona, where they attempted to breach the registration list via a county-level infiltration. So I would like us to be able to know more about this. I would like there to be more declassified information uh, about what actually happened, but this is just the first step, I think, in hackers becoming more acquainted with the American election system and preparing. What I'm worried about is that they're now trying to prepare for an even broader attack on our election systems in 2018 or 2020.
15: Hacking into 21 different states' election systems, how does this compare with hacking John Podesta's emails or the (laughs) DNC emails, which, of course, were posted on WikiLeaks
0: at that key moment in the campaign? Well, I view the hacking of election systems as a far more serious threat because emails are one thing. Uh, Things that people use to register to vote or to vote on get to the heart of America's election process. And and whether uh, Russia did it this time or someone else does it another time, what my piece looked at is just how vulnerable our system is. How uh, insecure our voting systems and and other stuff uh, are, how easy it would be for hackers to try to access registration data, how they could change voters' information uh, to screw up the roles in any number of ways. For example, like in states with strict voter ID laws, where your driver's license or some other photo identification has to match on your name on your voting rolls almost exactly, if you just changed one or two letters in everyone's name, that could prevent thousands of people from being able to cast oh. a regular ballot. So oh. these are the kind of nightmare scenarios that, that I'm worried about and that a lot of other people who study American election systems are worried about as well.
15: Well, the little that we know about this is the statement from, includes a statement from our intelligence agencies saying no votes were changed or altered by Russian hacking. Do you think that's true?
0: Well, there's no evidence that any votes were changed, but unfortunately there's, there's not any evidence to suggest that they weren't changed either, um, meaning that DHS said they had not conducted a forensic analysis of any of the voting machines. I asked multiple election experts how confident they were that no votes were changed and what i what they told me was it's impossible to know which isn't to suggest a conspiracy theory that somehow all of these voting machines were hacked what it is to say is that Fourteen states vote on electronic voting machines with no paper trails. So if there was a hacking, it might be very difficult to detect it. Meanwhile, the other 36 states have some sort of paper backup, but they don't check that paper regularly enough to compare the results. So we have some basic protections in place, but if we were really targeted with a massive cyber attack on our election systems, we are very, very vulnerable. And given what happened in 2016, it's extremely disturbing. We haven't done anything to protect our election system going forward.
15: Are we sure that the Russians did it? Trump has tweeted, quote, I strongly pressed President Putin twice about Russian meddling in our election. He vehemently denied it, close quote. Your comment. <laughs> well, <if>
0: Putin, <laughs> that's like asking a mobster if he killed someone. You know, he's probably not going to admit it unless he absolutely has to. I have no reason to dispute what the intelligence community is saying about this. Their findings are unanimous that it was the Russians. Meanwhile, intelligence officials going to Capitol Hill and saying it was the Russians, while they're serving in the Trump administration, puts them at great personal risk. So people from the FBI, people from the Department of Homeland Security, people from the CIA who are currently serving in the government, when they're testifying that it was Russia that hacked us, that's only going to make Trump angry. So if anything, they have a built-in incentive to say it wasn't the Russians. And they're saying quite the opposite.
15: You said that one of the things that uh, an adversary could do would be to change the voter registration rolls to, to, in states where strict ID is required that would prevent thousands of people from voting. Would it be possible or what would it take to prevent Russians from changing the actual results on the machines? How hard would it be for
0: us to prevent that from happening? It would be harder, but not impossible to access the machine. So the registration lists sit on a bunch of different computers. So it's easier to hack the registration list. The machines themselves are not connected to the internet. But what I learned reporting this piece is that when the machines are programmed, because you have to program every machine, they often are connected to computers that are connected to the internet. So that's how you'd have to do it. Or you'd have to physically get access to some of these machines. So it's more difficult, but certainly not impossible for someone who has a lot of technological sophistication with hacks.
15: I I read that uh, 42 states use Windows XP for their voting system. I think we were supposed to stop using Windows Windows XP in 2014.
0: (laughs) Have I I got that right? Well, so... a bunch of voting voting machines were bought after the 2000 election in Florida, after the Hanging chad and Butterfly ballot debacle, and these machines were supposed to last for 10 to 15 years, meaning they have all basically expired by now. Um, but states haven't spent money to buy new voting machines, and this is extremely problematic because, first off, the old software is totally primitive, it's, it's easier to hack, and second thing... I mean, it could just melt down regardless of a hack. Um, if machines break down, that leads to long lines, that leads to skepticism about the results, that leads to difficulty counting the results accurately. We saw this in Detroit in the last election, where tons of machines just broke down. Like a third of the city had broken down voting machines, um, and it led to big problems on election day. So I think it's absolutely insane that we're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on a quote-unquote election integrity commission when. there's There's no evidence of voter fraud whatsoever in American elections, but we can't even get a few million dollars to the states to upgrade their voting machines and create a paper trail. I mean, it's totally unconscionable.
15: Yeah, the figures that I saw in the New York Times was replacing all the uh, old electronic voting machines that produce no paper trail. That's 14 states, according to the New York Times, with new machines that would have auditable returns would cost something like $130 million, maybe as much as $400 million. Uh, is that a lot in terms of the
0: federal budget? Um, it's not a lot in terms of the federal budget, and it's certainly not a lot in, when our elections cost billions of dollars, uh, and we don't even have confidence that the machines that are counted in will work accurately or, or will not be hacked. So to me, this needs to be the, the number one priority.
15: Well, luckily for us, we already have a presidential commission charged with investigating election integrity and recommending ways to improve it. This is the President's Commission, headed by Mike Pence and Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach. What's your assessment of their work at this point?
0: Well, my assessment of the commission is that it's Totally pointless. There is absolutely no evidence to suggest that millions of people voted illegally as Donald Trump tweeted and that's the only reason we have this commission in the first place and it's focused on the absolutely wrong problem. We should be looking at election hacking and the vulnerability of our voting system and also at voter suppression laws all across the country that made it harder to vote in 2016 and their impact on voter participation. We've had many, many, many studies now of voter fraud. It's an extremely rare problem in American elections to the extent that it occurs It's regularly caught. Uh, Election officials themselves will say this is not a big problem. We have much, much, much bigger problems. And my fear is that the Election Integrity Commission is going to spread this gigantic lie about voter fraud, which is that millions of people voted illegally or at least a very large number of people voted illegally and then because of that we have to put in place all of these steps that make it more difficult to vote all of these new restrictions that make it more difficult to vote while doing nothing to actually make our election system more secure and actually preserve the integrity of our election systems which many people are doubting after the 2016 election Come
14: relax till we're free from this
4: Congressman Mark Pocan, on the line with us, uh, representing Wisconsin's second district, pocan.house.gov. He's also the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Congressman. And you can tweet him at Rep Mark M A R K P O C A N. Congressman, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. Great to have you with us. So I understand you've got some legislation you're going to drop. Yeah.
16: You know, I'll tell you, when people ask sometimes, you know, where an idea comes uh, forth for us to put out legislation, uh, this is a classic example. You know, being on your show and having the conversation every week with people who have very rightfully been uh, upset about the interstate cross-check and, uh, concerned that more is not being done about it. Uh, we uh, are introducing a bill today, uh, Representative John Conyers and myself, uh, called the Voter Role Integrity Act that would specifically uh, address the interstate cross-check issue. And it would uh, mandate that any state that takes someone off the polls, they would have to independently confirm uh, that person's full name, including middle name, their date of birth, the last four digits of their Social Security number, uh, for privacy, and the suffix uh, of their name, and it has to request a response from the voters to confirm a change of address. Uh, all these safeguards, we've worked with the groups that uh, deal with these issues around the country. Uh, we feel this is the the strongest that we can have to make sure that people won't be thrown off like the 7.2 million people were uh, under the interstate cross-check. And uh, we're, you know, really glad that this came out of a conversation with people across the country saying this is important. We're introducing this. And if you uh, as you know, from Greg Palin's uh, movie, you know, this is exactly what he said. We have to expose this in order to defeat this. And this is helping us to expose this issue so that states can't get away with purging voters so that politicians can pick who votes for them rather than the other way around.
4: Yeah, it's it's really remarkable to me how you know in some in some areas Greg Palast's movie has really gone viral, and and in um, other parts of the media, it's the the, the, the debate itself, the issue is invisible. Um, you know, Joy Reid's been doing a good job on MSNBC with this, but uh, CNN I don't think has even brought up the topic. So I'm really glad to hear that you're you're dropping this, le- you're putting this legislation on the floor. Um, what can people do to support it?
16: Well, I think, you know, uh, because it, I don't have a number yet because we're dropping it this afternoon. Once we have that, we'll share it with you, Tom, if you don't mind uh, putting it on your website. That'd sure. That'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, and we'll be putting it on our Facebook page and our Twitter account so that people can contact their member of Congress and ask them to sign on. But this gives us an organizing tool to have this conversation with our elected officials and to try to gain support for people to get on the bill. And I know Public Citizen is, uh, you know, giving us a quote on the press release that goes out. So we've got their support. And, um, you know, there's this uh, report that even NBC had uh, in 2016 talking about analyzing 50 million registered voters from 12 states. And you know, they came up with that $7 million, $7 million, dollar, person number. Um, you know, this is something I think that gives us that opportunity to try to raise the profile of the issue and make it harder for those who want to cheat voters out of their uh, what should be a right to vote.
1: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, four actions to fight Trump's sham voter fraud commission in your state. Obviously, there is a vast consensus that Trump's commission on voter fraud is a fraud all its own, created entirely out of Trump's inferiority complex after soundly losing the popular vote, and to add a whole new federal level to voter suppression tactics seven federal lawsuits have been filed against the commission by the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the ACLU, Public Citizen, and others. These lawsuits allege a lack of transparency, Privacy Act violations, and racial discrimination by the commission and its efforts. And though some states are partially complying with the commission's request for voter information by giving the public record data only, many states say they won't comply at all. If it can get its hands on the voter data, the commission has said it wants to run it through the now-notorious interstate cross-check system. As a refresher, the system was led by commission chairman Chris Kobach in his home state of Kansas and has been adopted by other voter fraud-fearing states. The system compares state databases and finds duplicate voters based only on first name, last name, and birth date, and then suggests states scrub these duplicates from the rolls. But in a country of 139 million voters, there are bound to be people with the same names and birthdays, and three states have already abandoned using cross-check due to, quote-unquote, accuracy issues. And that's putting it lightly. A statistical analysis of the program conducted by Stanford, Harvard, University of Pennsylvania, and Microsoft found the system eliminates about 200 legitimate voters for every one that casts a double vote. In other words, it's wrong 99% of the time. Despite all of this, the Voter Fraud Commission is already succeeding in suppressing the vote. When Colorado said it would mostly comply with the commission's data request, more than 5,300 people. People voluntarily deregistered. It's like their immigration self deportation plan, but turns towards voters who now self suppress. So here is a four step plan to get your state to resist Trump's sham commission. First, find out if your state is complying and if so to what extent don't assume that because you live in a blue state that your state is not still planning to hand over their public voter rolls second find your local voting rights organization beyond the federal lawsuits this battle is being fought on the state level which is why we don't just have one place we can send you today start getting involved and in volunteering with local chapters of organizations like let america vote League of Women Voters, Voto Latino, Democracy Awakening, and more. Third, find out how to contact your state board of elections, then call and write them to tell them you do not want your state to comply with a sham commission created to excuse and promote voter suppression. We've included a link to a solid, adaptable call script from an Illinois local action group called Action for a Better Tomorrow in the show notes. Also, if the Board of Elections has a social media page, start commenting and share it with your networks to engage your community. And finally, contact your governor by every available channel and tell them exactly how you feel. Tell them your vote depends on how they protect voters in the face of the Trump administration's lying and bullying. You should also note that Chris Kobach is running for governor of Kansas in 2018, but violating the Hatch Act as he goes, by the way, but that's another story, so throwing a few bucks at his opponent when the time comes would be a nice favor to the people of Kansas. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com, so if defending democracy and fighting voter suppression is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about these four actions to fight Trump's voter suppression commission in your state via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too.
17: Can you stand up and be
6: counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed? Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change.
5: I was curious if yep. you could talk to us a little bit about kind of the nexus between disenfranchisement and, and the economy, because I think there's a lot of overlap there, but I don't know that very many people have unpacked that.
17: Racial vote suppression is class war by other means. When we talk about people who can't, uh, who can't vote uh, because of, of Mickey Mouse rules to supposedly stop voter fraud, Yes, it's usually the victims can be identified by their color. They're black voters, they're brown voters, they're Asian American voters now. But in general, we're talking about a class issue. So, for example, um, we take the issue of voter ID. Um, Now, we do know that voter ID, the demand that you produce a voter ID in order to vote, which is meant to stop voter fraud. So someone can't use your name, you know, oh, you know, I'm I'm gonna vote for Greg Palace. Someone steals my name and votes in my name. Well the the thing is it started in Indiana and in one hundred years of record keeping Indiana didn't have a single example of someone voting uh you know, using someone else's name to, to vote. They couldn't come up with one example. Wisconsin one single example. So what's happening? Well, when the studies were done about who didn't have the proper ID, this meant, who doesn't have driver's licenses? Well, uh, to begin with, people who don't drive. Who doesn't drive? People who can't afford a car. And so now, not being able to afford a car means not being able to afford to vote. So that's a class issue. And to me, it really sharpens when you get to people like, uh, for example, who supports um, who supports the requirement to have a, a, a picture ID to vote? Andy Young. Now, Andy Young is a multi-millionaire. Martin Luther King, I uh, used to call my favorite Republican. He was mayor of Atlanta. He was a uh, U.N. Uh, uh, representative uh, under the Carter administration for the United States. He was, so he's Ambassador Young. And he's also on the board of directors of big corporations. He was on the board of directors of Barrett Gold Mining, a, a a corporation known for its vicious and bloodthirsty uh, tactics in Africa, for example. But Andy Young's on the board, so he's so Andy Young thinks. Well, yeah, people ought to have ID to vote because he has an ID, he has a passport, he has you know his UN diplomatic papers, etc. So he's part of that ruling class. He can't imagine what it is for someone who doesn't have an ID or a driver's license to get it. Uh, in Indiana, you take uh, it. Uh, the ACLU measured it it takes uh, it was the average county seat to get a non voter i d to get that non voter i d is seventeen miles away from the average voter if you don't have a car, you got to take a bus it's an average of three buses. It takes all day to get there and come back and by the way, when you show up at the voting office uh, at the uh d m v to get your non voter i d you need an i d right so you need an i d to get an i d so you know what happens is, and the Supreme Court, Justice Scalia, um, who the devil took back um, <laughs> Rest early, <his> soul. <laughs> um, Justice Scalia, has, he had a black BMW, and he wrote that 17 miles is 17 miles to get to the, to the office where you get your uh, non-voter ID. He says 17 miles is 17 miles if you're black or if you're white or if you're richer or you're poor no, that's not true right uh antonin the, the, the uh, and if you have a, a black beamer, you can make seventeen miles in about thirteen minutes. The reason I know that it's thirteen minutes is that he was given a speeding ticket in his beamer. <laughs> that's how I know he has the, that's how I know he has his black beamer or had one. and uh but if you are if you're poor and you don't have a, a black beamer, then um it. It takes you all day to go back and forth. So, you know, it's actually to the point where these people don't know and don't care that the right to vote is becoming a mark of the privileged, not just a mark of the white.
1: We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, speaking with Ari Berman, who explained that Chris Kobach is helping lay the groundwork for nationwide voter suppression efforts. The broadcast discussed the legal troubles Kobach's voter task force has already run into. On the Media corrected some of the misconceptions about the way states responded to requests for voter file information. Off Kilter discussed the purging of voters in Ohio, a state that is sometimes relevant to presidential elections. Start Making Sense spoke with Ari Berman about what is both broken and not broken about our voting systems. Tom Hartman spoke with Congressman Mark Pocan about the Democrats' bill to prevent incorrect voter purging. Our activism for today is a variety of actions to resist the Voter Suppression Commission. And finally, we just heard the other Washington speaking with Greg Pallast about the class divide over who is able to vote. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, We'll hear from
14: you. Hey, Jay. It's David from Metro Detroit, Michigan. I have a perfect example of late capitalism. Last night, I went to a plasma, in quotes, donation center where you can, uh, again, in quotes, donate your plasma and you get money as a reward. Now, I used that money to buy groceries immediately thereafter, donating my plasma. Depending on the day, you can get $45, uh, and some specials, even 70 bucks for that. Now what's funny is why, why would I have to be spending or donating my plasma to get money to buy groceries? Well, I'm a public school teacher with $22,000 of student debt. I just thought that was an incredibly fitting situation for uh, what late capitalism is. Funny thing about this episode, though, while donating plasma, I was reading a book called... Living in the End Times by Slyvoy Zizek. That's Z-I-Z-E-K. So if you have time, you can add this in for other listeners for a good book recommendation. It's all about the end of capitalism. That's Living in the End Times by Slyvoy Zizek. It's a very good book so far. I am three-quarters of the way through. And uh, for anyone who's familiar with this guy, you will be laughing your butt off through the whole book. Thanks again, Jay, for all you do.
8: Hi there, Jay. Uh, this is David from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I was thinking about uh, that late capitalism thing and all of the growth of the dollar stores, dollar generals, dollar, I don't know, dollar, whatever it is, there's like a bunch of them. I, I see them all the time. They're on like, I can see every quarter, and I just think that uh, people can't afford to buy real goods and uh, can't afford to buy Products that are generally not made in Asia. So, you got a, one store is like everything is a dollar.
3: No. Anyway,
8: late capitalism. There you go. Okay. Bye. Hey, Justin in Indiana. Uh, you just blew my mind. I mean, blew my mind. If there is any argument for income equality, just Quality in life in general. It is the fact that there's someone out there carrying around the cure for cancer, the cure for AIDS, solution to diplomatic issues that are unsolved. Great, 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 great commentary. So I just wanted to throw that one at you. That's a game changer. Uh, especially when I have conversations with my uh, friends and family. That takes away the politicized part of, of the uh, income gap and the equality issue. So, thanks again. Have a good one. You're doing a great job. Thanks.
16: Hey Jay, it's Alan, your member from Connecticut, calling in in response to your um, low-hanging fruit with Amazon. And I just wanted to point something out that I, I don't have any evidence to back up, but I, I'm very suspicious of. Uh, we all have apps on our phone for a- Amazon, or most of us do anyway. And I believe that the purchases made on that app do not support best of the left. And I've been guilty of this myself. But my solution to that is to add things to the cart from the app. But when you go to check out, go through the web browser, go to the link when you go to do that, it's going to offer to open it up in the app and you have to say no and then buy it through the web using your link. And then you should be able to get those proceeds. Anyway, stay awesome. Thanks.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, just a quick comment on uh, what we heard from Alan regarding Amazon. I don't know that he is right about his theory. I don't have the evidence either way. But what I can say, to be absolutely positive, that if you want to support the show, you want to use our affiliate link, and you want to do it on mobile, the solution, honestly, is to get rid of the app and replace it with a home screen shortcut link. So you can just go to our affiliate link, you know, whatever US, Canadian, UK store that you want to go to, and then save that URL as a home screen button. I am 100% positive that's possible on iOS. I am fairly certain it's on Android as well. And so then, okay, so you're not using the built-in app. The mobile website is not quite as good, but it's pretty much just as good. So it's a minor sacrifice to make but you still have the Amazon button on your home screen. It's still easy to access, but you know that you're using our affiliate link and supporting the show every time you use it. No extra thinking required. Secondly today, I have one additional voicemail to play for you and some comments afterward.
13: Hi Jay, this is Jeremy. I'm from Spokane, Washington. Uh, Last Thursday, I believe the 27th of July, my friend Matthew Folden was uh, murdered by police. They say he had a knife. Witnesses say that there was no knife. Multiple witnesses have videos of what happened directly after the shooting, which shows the police handcuffing his body as he's bleeding. Witnesses say that there was no aid given before they shoot everybody off. Apparently, somebody that works there said there was no knife. So far, I haven't heard from anybody that says there was actually a knife. This is in Wenatchee, Washington. His name is Matt Folden. And I want people to know what happened to him. And I want, uh, we have a website up. It is called expectedrestraint.com. And I'd like people to go there. Uh, We're going to put up uh, ways for people to donate money to the family and to a proper investigation. Right now, it's being investigated by a coalition of different police forces in the area, which all work together regularly. So there is no unbiased investigation going on as we speak. And I'm afraid that the truth is not going to come out and I need some help. If you could help us, I would really appreciate it. Again, the web address is expectedrestraint.com. Thank you, Jay, for all your hard work. Bye.
1: Jeremy emailed in addition to leaving that voicemail. And to be honest, my initial reaction was, I have no idea. This is way outside my wheelhouse. And to a large degree, I still feel that way. I can spread the word by playing the message. What I would say beyond that is because I don't have advice. Uh, this is, this is not my area of expertise. So rather than trying to reinvent the wheel or look for someone to call in and give advice, my advice to Jeremy and and his community and anyone else who finds themselves in a situation like this is to get in touch with organizations that already exist, that are already on the ground, that already uh, deal with this sort of thing. The one that comes to mind most obviously is Black Lives Matter because, contrary to popular belief, they actually care about people who are killed by the police no matter the color of their skin. So I, I would get in touch with Black Lives Matter because, at the very least, they have resources or they know what resources you should tap into. Secondly, I will reiterate that if you want to get a few more details on this specific case, the website is expectedrestraint.com, and Jeremy didn't go into detail, but the basic idea is that uh, this is another one of those cases where the police very much could have restrained themselves, even if the situation was dangerous, even if the situation was exactly as the police describe it. They could and should have been expected to have a little bit more restraint rather than shooting a person three times. So that's the website, and you can get more details there. But one of the most powerful things I found on that website is a link to a Washington State ballot measure, De-Escalate Washington, subtitled Building Bridges Between Communities and Police. So if you live in Washington, check out deescalatewa.org and get involved, sign up, uh, sign the petition, whatever you need to do, volunteer, and get this ballot measure on the ballot and vote it on as one step of many to try to repair this terrible thing that's going on between our police forces and the communities they are supposed to be serving. Again, that's deescalatewa.org. And I know we have a lot of listeners over in Washington. So all of you guys, please check that out. That's going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks, as always, to everyone for listening, and especially to those who support the show by donating, either by becoming a member or now with Patreon. They make it easier than ever to donate as little as a buck a month. Other systems don't really do that. They don't cater to the the low-dollar donations, and, and Patreon really does. So maybe membership isn't your bag, but you want to toss a buck our way, maybe you want to toss a buck to a whole bunch of different shows, uh, Patreon makes that really smooth and easy, so uh, please check us out there. You can get details either on our contribute page or by going to Patreon and just searching for us. And, of course, you can always support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and now Facebook. That's a big one because you leave us a review on Facebook, and then your friends see that you've left a review, and then they check out the show, and then they tell two friends, and those friends tell two friends, and so on and so on. Also, as long as you're on social media, you can help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by helping share all of the great content we're putting out there on both Facebook and Twitter. And if you're just looking for details on the show, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, at outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left Podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to to the members and donors to the show from bestofbeloft.com
4: and it's a cry and shame how we get so trained